The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host, and trying to keep it together. <laughs> We've already had a great start. Uh, here with my unofficial mediator and colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with Bill. Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. Right. So first things first, looking forward to this. Second things second, I have just got to acknowledge this mustache. As an Englishman <laughs> and a big fan of the RAF, that mustache rocks. Okay, that's all I've got to say. <laughs> There's got to be stories behind it. Anyways, as an entrepreneur, our guest has helped the broad spectrum of organizations and their teams transform into leaders. He's known to be intensely curious, sees connections that others don't, and relentlessly pursues better ways of doing things. His playground is diverse, including residential construction, building science market, having worked with some well-known recognized brands, even with people that we've had on the show before. Welcome to the show, CEO of the Dillon Group, Brett Dillon. (laughs) Thanks. Brett, your bio has an interesting line, one that we haven't seen before. An international award-winning former home builder, pro wrestler, <laughs> talk about that, security consultant and surveillance operative. That's kind of an interest. We've had people on the guest say that they got to start picking up cigarette butts on construction sites, but we've never quite had that line before. <laughs> so how did you uh, get to where you are today through that journey? Tell us your story. So uh, actually, uh, my dad was a third-generation home builder, you know, he believed that child labor laws meant you were supposed to work your children. So we all grew up, <laughs> he had three sons. We all grew up on the job site. And my earliest memory is sweeping sawdust off a slab. And I tried to do a ton of stuff that I found really interesting that was not what my dad did. And so I ended up doing all of these things, trying to get out of residential construction. But every time I would, I, I was good at it, all these other things. But I get pulled back in. I get pulled back in. It was like the mafia, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was out. I'm not you know? leave. <laughs> and, uh, and so I get pulled back in. And, and finally I said, fuck it. You know, <laughs> if, if this keeps happening, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. And those other things can just be interesting mm. chapters in my life's work. My last paid job as a home builder, I was a construction director for a Habitat for Humanity affiliate in uh, Chattanooga. And I went to a conference. And we'd been building things the way people have always been building things out of wood. And this lady was up there and she was saying some really provocative things. And Janet McElvain from the Florida Solar Energy Center, I challenged her on everything she said, you know, and I was the guy in the front row, arms folded. By the way, if, if, when you see me with my arms folded, don't mistake the body language. Um, both of my shoulders are screwed up. This one got jacked up in a fight in England. And this one got jacked up in a fight at a police department. So (laughs) so basically, I fold my arms to keep my shoulders in place. But I was sitting there and I was posturing. I was throwing out all these things at her. And she pulled me aside and she said, why don't you go look at a house you built 10 years ago and tell us how you did? And I did. And it sucked. (laughs) We were still building the same way. And I thought, holy shit, I have really screwed things up. So she directed me to some really great resources. And if it hadn't been for that chance encounter, I never would have been able to do what I've done. And Janet McElvain is like a a real gem. She's just amazing. And she guided me over the years, told me where I needed to go to learn things, who I could learn from, opened up all these doors for me. 
and just, I mean, like, holy crap. And we went from building non-code compliant homes to building Energy Star homes in six months. And then, of course, I got fired. But (laughs) (laughs) every good entrepreneur gets fired at least several times in their career. (laughs) Entrepreneurs are like the the new high priest, right? There's a certain percentage of heretics and have to be burnt at the stake at some point, right? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I'm actually working on a book called Confessions of a Heretic. (laughs) Yes. People say things and it's like, I don't know that that's true. And then I'll go dig into it. And I was like, no, 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 that's, you know, there's a thing in the U.S. We've got the HERS index, right? Mm. And the Department of Energy published a report that said the average HERS index, which is an energy efficiency scale for homes, the average HERS index of an existing home is 130. And I'm like, well, where's, where's that study? I, you know, I want to see, show me the data. So I was, I was at a bar drinking at a conference with some, <laughs> Some folks that it, that, that doesn't that, happen in our industry at all. Never. <laughs> I mean, you guys have been there since the very beginning. In fact, you know, there there was uh, David Goldstein was sitting next to me and Philip Ferry, and I was like, "Okay, oh, wow. you know, where did that number come from?" And David Goldstein said, "Well, this is the coolest bit." And I lean in, you know, because I want to hear what's the cool bit. And he goes, uh, "The guy who was writing that report called Philip up and asked Philip what he thought the average <laughs> index was." And Philip said, thirty. And, and then it got published. And because they never cited the research report, it can't ever be disputed. <laughs> yeah. I know, Phil. I'm <laughs> like, what the hell? You know? That sounds a lot like my university career. Tell me that. Boom. It's in there. Done. <laughs> yeah. And once it gets published in a report, who's going to question it? I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, the average index is 130. Is it? I lived in a house that was 310. This is is the wisdom of Seinfeld. As as Jules Costanza used to say, it's not a lie if you believe it. You believe it's not a lie. So if you say it's 130 and you believe it, I'm in. Yeah, how'd that work out for Alex Jones? (laughs) Look, actually, in one of the roles, many roles I have, I'm sort of mentoring a uh, sort of young Australian dude who works for me in London. And he's having a bit of a hard time on a job at the moment because the contractor we're working for as commission managers are just awful at every level, right? There's just there's nothing good you can point to here. And I was he said to me, as it I'm 40 years in, right? He says, Has it ever was it always been like that? And I said, I'm looking back, I said, in 40 years, I can say I've met great design firms, I go, that awesome, great developers, awesome. I can't name one contractor who I'd say, wow, they were freaking great. Not one in 40 years. So mm. how would you describe the that in mind? And I've worked in the States, by the way, for a year and a half. So what's your assessment of the current state of play on house building in the U.S.? You know, it sucks. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Put cherry on that. <laughs> Two words. <laughs> so my dad, he was in home building. He was part of the production, tract housing, building revolution in Southern California in the 50s and 60s. And and he worked in manufactured housing as well, where there's a very defined process in doing things, manufactured housing. It's an assembly line, build a home, you know, yeah. raw materials come in one into the building, a manufactured house pops out the other end, gets stuck on a yeah. truck, hauled off somewhere. And so he started taking that kind of approach to home building that he did, right? And so it was very process oriented, very, and I learned a lot from that. And then I get exposed to the real world. <laughs> it's like, how in the hell are these things standing up after five years? Literally, we have a house, there's a subdivision going in. I live out in cornfields or what used to be cornfields. They're all moved out here, the pandemic, they're buying up rural land and developing it. Subdivision going in across the way. So I take our students 
over to the subdivision and like, hey, let's take a walk through these houses at frame. Walking through this house at frame and one of the students just puts his hand out and grabs a two by four stud, right? And as he does, the bottom of it swings free. No nails at all. <laughs> one nail in the top. And I said, pull that fucker out. Yeah. <laughs> now, throw it on the slab. Yeah. He'll have to fix it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just saw so much stuff. They were looking at it. It's like, you know, so this is, you know, I teach people, you're doing quality control for a builder. This is what the builder has to deal with. The superintendents aren't really construction people. They're schedulers. And their computer program tells them on this day, this guy's supposed to show up. If that guy doesn't show up, regardless of whether the job's ready for him or not, he gets yelled at. You know, get on the phone, yell at this guy, get him to show up, get the job done. Most of the, the actual, you know, people who know how to build things aren't doing construction work right? It's like the superintendents and the guys that are construction managers. And it's gotten really ridiculous, especially when they can't manage the job and then they're managing trades who don't know what the fuck they're supposed to be doing. Mm. So so we have these unskilled trades that are out there, HVAC ductwork being put in by guys that they pick up at the Home Depot parking lot, right? Yeah. No, actually, you have to know how to put ductwork together. You know, it has to be sealed at the time of installation, sealing it afterward doesn't work quite as well. Plus, it's a big expense and time waste and all the rest of that. You know, so you need to know what you're doing. I was actually, we got called into a house one time. It was fucking amazing. If you're going to screw up a house, don't screw up this house, right? The wife is an attorney and the husband is a naval architect. (laughs) (laughs) Flashing lights. Yeah. I'm like, hey, warning, warning. (laughs) Well, this guy knows something about how to keep water out of things. And yeah. she knows how to get money out of uh, people. So <laughs> we'll fuck up their house. And from day one, the contractor fucked up their house. Day one, right? And then they end up with literally, it's dripping water out of their attic. There's water seeping out of their walls. I mean, just there's mold growing in all kinds of crazy places. And I was down there teaching a class. And one of the students said, hey, you know, I got this house I'd like you to come take a look at. And I was like, oh, dear God in heaven, no, don't. You know, I did. They bought me some beer and I was like, okay, I'll go. (laughs) How in the hell could this happen? Like at what point did, did somebody go, oh yeah, let's put radiant barrier on the roof deck and then let's put spray foam on top of that. And then let's vent the attic after we've spray foamed and encapsulated all with spray foam. Oh, by the way, this house is right on the fucking Gulf coast, 30 yards out the back doors. (laughs) That's humid as hell, right? Yeah. Constant wind. Huge vapor drive coming to the inside. I mean, just incredible. And then the HVAC guy decides that to solve all of these problems that they had, he was going to cut a hole in a supply plenum, just a random hole in a supply plenum to drop conditioned air into the attic. No return pass. So that so we're cooling the air down. It's super humid. Cooling yeah. down. Dew point conditions are reached. Congratulations. Yeah, and that's the water flashing in, right? <laughs> it's like, what the hell? I mean... And so they were like, so what we need to do is put a return in here. It's like, no, you need to rip all this shit out. <laughs> That's what you need to do. So the guy ended up having to tear everything out. You know, like, I mean, they'd had drywall up and everything. You had to rip it all out, rip it down to the studs, rebuild. And then, you know, the sad part about all of this stuff is that these stories happen everywhere. Yeah. But we know what works and what doesn't work. And there's no shortage of education programs. There's no shortage of experts. Yeah. You know, but it still goes on today. And I, you know, with Adam, like I'm on my 42nd year or something like that in the industry. I started out in the trades, got then went into engineering. It hasn't changed. It has not changed in 40 some years. 
No. So I don't know what the answer is. Is this? So we need is? to send a wrestler out and to knock a few <laughs> <Yeah>. people. <laughs> so I can tell you that, that I have been able to use my mustache to get away with some amazing shit on the job site. Right. <laughs> I had an HVAC contractor one time. I was he had put in a giant return grill. Like the return grill was like I don't know nine square feet or so. <laughs> and I said, your return isn't big enough. And he goes, sure it is. Look at the size of that grill. And I says, no, no, no. Look at the size of the hole between that yeah. and the, the HVAC system. You've got an eight inch diameter hole <laughs> that we need like a 14 inch diameter. Yeah. Hole. You've got an eight inch. I said, the returns work on the smallest hole theory. Only the amount of air that can move through the smallest hole between <laughs> that grill and the HVAC system. Is I going love to that. Through there. Smallest goes, hole theory. Yeah, and he goes, well, that's not true. And I said, I'm going to demonstrate. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to open your mouth as big as you can. (laughs) Yeah? Now, I'm going to put my hands around your throat. (laughs) Your mouth open, really big, and and I'm going to start squeezing your windpipe. And I started talking to this guy. And I I said, right, now, so it doesn't matter how big your mouth is, does it? It matters how big your windpipe is. Oh, I get it. And then he you know, trundles <laughs> off to go figure out how to fix this. And the builder turns to me and he goes, I can't believe you just choked me. <laughs> I go, I do it all the time. I get away with this because I got a curly mustache. Like, <laughs> Yeah, not everybody can do that. Yeah, <laughs> you normally have to pay extra for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you know what I keep running into is it's this unwillingness to learn. Mm. They've gotten a certain level of education and they go, I know everything I need to know. Mm. They don't know what they don't know. And yeah. when they get into what they don't know, they just go, well, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. That's not a problem. This is what we know. This is what works. And it goes, yeah, yeah no, it doesn't. Uh, the universe yeah. doesn't give a shit about your degree. The universe doesn't give a shit about what it's you've fun. read. <laughs> yeah, it's about outcomes. So what's the story behind the Building Science Institute? And is this your reaction to the, the mayhem that is, <laughs> is construction? Partly. It's designed, we do quality management work for the energy rating industry. We're the first competitor to ResNet Mm. they've ever had. We were the second organization recognized by the EPA for home certification oversight of the Energy Starting Homes Program. And again, it was one of those things I kept trying to exit that industry because it's like I was on their board of directors. I was on their standards management board. I chaired their ANSI standards development committee for their technical standards for eight years. I tried to change the way they were doing things to improve the organization and got beat down at every chance they could throw at me. So I finally said, fuck it, you know, I will leave. I can go do other things. I can go sell t-shirts at the beach. You know, I mean, I've got some wonderful t-shirt ideas and and I think so. (laughs) So I was trying to get out of it, but our clients kept begging us to come back in. And I was like, okay, so if we come back in, let's just reimagine everything. Like, let's just strip what we think we know away. And it's like, what is it we really need to do? What is the real outcome that we need? We need consistency in software, which they've got like three software tools that they've approved. You get wildly inconsistent things out of them. Even though there's a standard that they're supposed to adhere to, we find out not always. So you've got inconsistency in the software tools. You've got inconsistency in training. You have like our training course is two fucking weeks long, right? Mm. And we teach people the theory and then we teach them the practice and we teach them, here's what the real world is like. Here's how you really do it. We take people up into a hot Texas attic and yeah. we hold them up there for as long as we can. <laughs> I will say the only person that I have let loose early, she was a pregnant woman. And I was like, it's 150 <laughs> degrees up here. I want you to poke your head up here. Take a look around, take pictures. 
and then get the hell out. <laughs> yeah. So, but the guys, I'll, I'll stay up there for an hour and a half and it'd be 150, 160 degrees up there. Because if they can't take the heat in the attic, then, then are they going to be any good doing inspections of mm-hmm. attic insulation in the summer? Are they going to be the guy that pokes their head up and goes, yeah, it looks great from here and off they bugger, you know? No. So we have two weeks of our training program. Competitors, two days. Yeah. Two days. Congratulations. You're qualified to be an energy raider. The fuck? You know, like seriously? So the great inconsistency yeah. in training, inconsistency in software, and then inconsistency in the quality management that's being done. In one company, one company, they found one guy who they said was deliberately committing fraud, like just making, you know, drive-by inspections and writing down things. They throw his ass out. Another one, a code official catches this guy committing fraud. They go out and confirm, yes, he has, in fact, been committing dozens of cases of fraud. Not once, not twice, three times. That fucker's still in the business. Wow. And like with that kind of inconsistency, how can anybody expect the industry to be doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is helping to maintain the integrity of the construction process, right? The builder has made a promise to deliver to that home buyer a home of a certain quality. Energy efficiency is the part we focus on. Our job is to help him maintain his work, help him maintain his integrity. And if this is what's going on, how do we do better? And so we basically canned everything we thought we knew and started from scratch to deliver those outcomes. And of course, along the way, we just realized that the wheel had already been invented. So we stole everything. One of my companies is called Intellectual Ferret for a fucking reason. <laughs> Shiny ideas, steal them, pack them away. Eventually, we make How Romanesque of you. <laughs> this one and this one. Let's, let's combine them and see what happens. So, you know, ISO 19011 uh, quality yeah. management audit guidelines, ISO 17020 uh, requirements for inspection bodies. Who knew that thing existed, right? Yeah. So I did that. And of course, we're members of the American Society for Quality. So, you know, we take all of their, their things um, using an ANSI standard for sampling. You know, who knew? You know, so we just jammed all that in. And, and with a lot of rigorous review from the EPA, we got approved. And so now we're, now we're having an impact. And of course, we're being a little cheeky about things. Some of my commercials have dancing monkeys. Some of them have clowns. Those aren't represented in anything, are they? <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah, imagery works. So you've, you've hit, I'm feeling very triggered right now. <laughs> but you've hit on one of the things that drives me crazy, like the inconsistency. And what I mean by that is, so just take the ASHRAE commissioning standard, right? Yeah, so the conceit is if you follow this and you fill all these forms in, everything's done. (laughs) So if I showed you two forms, one both filled in completely, one could cost you $10,000 and one could cost you $50. The difference being the $50 one is someone sat in their cabin, had a coffee and just tick, 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 sign, done. That's the 80% of every job I've ever been to in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? So the conceit, and the problem, I'm starting to think Ashray might be the equivalent of CNN and Fox News, like only people over 70 care about it, right? It's, sorry, I know you are an Ashray fellow here and I'm shitting on your <laughs> thing, but I'm biting my tongue. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no consequences to bad work, right? And Ashray right. provide a fig leaf. <laughs> so you go to a contractor, you know, and he goes, yeah, here's 10 binders of all these check sheets in. I said, man, a quality outcome is inversely proportional to the amount of bullshit paperwork you get. Right. <laughs> more finders I get shoveled, the more I know I've got to go out there and really check stuff. Yeah. So, you know, ASHRAE does good work, but it's also a fig leaf. It provides a cover. And not just ASHRAE, to pick on them, there's other standards. They provide this cover. Yeah. I've got the ANSI checklist filled in, right? 
How do you get past that? How do you deliver consequences for bad work? I just don't know. Well, we're going to have a side. I'm going to let Brett answer. We're going to have a sidebar discussion here live on the ashtray stuff because they have 138 committees, right? And all those standards and some of them go back to the, you know, they're decades old. So the commissioning one is not exactly, has not been around a long time. No, no, no. And that's one of the problems. The commissioning one, uh, there's a lot of um, BS in that. We'll come back to that. that So go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the problem that we're facing, right? So how do we get this kind of consistency? How do we know about the quality of the work? Because I've been in the truck with the guy pulling yeah. up on the job site and he pulls out his checklist. You know, after you yeah. ride with the guy all day, at the end of the day, he falls into the habits that he actually, did, you know, this is how he actually mm-hmm. does things. Yeah. And he pulls out his checklist, starts checking off boxes. And I go, <clears throat> shouldn't you go look at the house first? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> what we did was right. we actually partnered with the software company. So our systems, our quality management system requires that they use our integrated inspection and energy modeling software tool. Yeah. So as they go through the process, they can either start off with the model or they can start off with the field inspection. But as they go through the process, they're required to document the things that we care about Mm. with a photograph and enter data into the software. If the data that they enter is unreasonable, uh, we've got AI in there that's checking all this stuff. If it seems unreasonable to us, then it sends a flag to a QA guy. Hey, take a look at this project. Somebody's doing something not right. And when we do, what we're looking at is does the photograph match the documentation? Mm. And then as we're tracking it through all the way through, when it gets to the energy modeling side, what we look at is, did the energy modeler change any of the data that was collected in the field? If they change that data behind the scenes, there's an automatic red flag that gets sent up to it. It says, hey, go look at that, right? Because what we're looking at is, first of all, the operator gets real-time feedback. If they didn't do what they were supposed to do when they went out there, they're notified, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to capture this information. You didn't capture it. Go get it. And then if they enter something that's unreasonable, they get, yeah, are you sure? (laughs) And you deliberately have to go, yes, I'm sure. That's what it is. And in the meantime, you know, our QA team is, you know, monitoring all of this. Yeah. And then at the end, when we look at the files, we get to look at, you know, what did the field guide document? What did he put into the data? You know, what was the photograph? What is the data? Do those things match up? On the software energy modeling end of it, did they change the data? You know, when they said this is what it was going to be like, do they have the blueprints attached so we can go look? Yeah, that house is actually this. Do they have the data to support what they put in? And of course, we automate as much of this as we can through some incredibly complex shit that I have no understanding of. (laughs) They start doing this and I'm like, listen, what I want is it for to do this. Yeah. And I want to have confidence that it's doing it correctly. And then it takes all that data and it shoves it into the uh, NREL Energy Plus calculation engine to spit out an energy rating index. Right. And the NREL Energy Plus calculation engine is one of the, as far as I know, it's the only one that we know has faithfully implemented all the equations out of the standard that governs those equations. So, <laughs> so we're confident in the outcome of that. Our listeners need to understand, I mean, what you're just describing is a quality control process that... Uh, yeah. When you think about the business owner, if he's got multiple technicians doing mm-hmm. audits out in the field, by having that system, he's assured that the people that he's trained and paid to go out and do that are doing what they're supposed to do. And then you guys are, as an overseer, are also checking that. I don't think I've heard anybody ever do that in any industry. That's pretty cool. It's a combination of several industries I was looking at. I was like, yeah. oh, 
good idea here, good idea here. I've been collecting mm. these ideas for a long time. I tend to put my, you know, it's, it's called the Medici effect. I put myself at the intersections of lots of different disciplines, lots of different things. I'm looking at all kinds of different industries all the time. Right. And I'm trying to figure out like, you know, what are they doing? Is it similar? You know, somebody else, surely I'm not the first person in the fucking world that's ever run into this problem. You know, <laughs> like, what did they do to solve this? And I keep being told that that's rare for an American, but it is rare. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I just know, you know, I know a lot of Americans and I, and I, people say I'm odd. And I thought that was because I, you know, my mustache or. <laughs> you might be the first who's actually cared about these things. Not who's that's that's the difference. It, right? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I think there's lots of people that care about it, but I tend to stand my ground. Have you guys ever done one of those like social media personality tests? You know, what movie character are you like? I've done the Myers Briggs and the. Um, well, those I are just come out as a psychopath. That's the problem with them. <laughs> so, you know, just as a lark, somebody said, "Hey, you know, you should do this." One of my employees, I was like, "I don't have the time." And they said, "Do it." And I was like, "Okay." So I did it, and it was for the movie The Watchmen. You guys seen All that? Right. Movie? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm fucking Rorschach. <laughs> are you a walking Rorschach test? <laughs> and I was like, "What the hell?" You know, his own team kills him in the end. Spoiler alert. After the tech, I was like, seriously, you know, I did one for, uh, for Lloyd of the Rings. Cause they said, no, let's try something else. So they did Lord of the Rings. I was the Sean Bean character. They got <laughs> murdered early, you know, I was like, Jesus Christ. Is there any one of these that I don't come out dead? <laughs> so are you saying this might be your last interview or <laughs> who knows, you know, but I, but I have a tendency to, it live. to go <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> I tell people all the time, you know, if, if you should, guys should film me whenever I'm doing something because it might be my last thing I do. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I got a fake leg, right? So I'd be wandering around and it's like, I, I fell down in the hospital one time. I was on my way to visit the CEO for a meeting unrelated to having a fake leg. And, and I fall down in the hallway. I just trip, right? You know, and, and I fall. And a bunch of nurses and everybody's jumped up and start running over. My wife stops them and she's like, stop. <laughs> The system. <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. That watchman <laughs> analogy is quite interesting because, you know, you could say that's the QA inspector's uh, fate always, right? He comes on, yeah. he, he or she, they come in, they find awkward sort of like, it's like being the envelope commission guy, finding a big problem, and it's like two weeks before handover. Yeah. No one's fixing that problem. <laughs> yeah. Right? Nobody. They're yeah. going to just shoot you and put you in the car park, Asheville, at some point, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's brutal. I used to work in New York. That's where that came from. <laughs> I thought they dropped them off the docks. But anyway, yeah. the Westies. But it's a serious problem. You know, when you're doing the commissioning work, you're the watchdog that gets beat with a stick every time you bark. <laughs> and, mm. and I'm like, what the hell? Like, why are you? Know, I actually put out an email to my clients. Like, why do they beat the watchdog? Yeah. And the reality is we're bringing up things that make them feel uncomfortable and they don't yeah. have the courage yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. It's and, messenger, right? And it's, and it's our job. They pay us 
to make sure they're delivering a good product. But what everybody's figured out is it's a lot easier if you just keep your mouth shut, tick the boxes, Mm -hmm. turn in the paperwork. It's defensible and let that house slide through to the homeowner. And then we'll deal with it whenever or if ever the homeowner ever complains. I was like, that's a great way to end up in class action lawsuits. Yeah. 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 And it's like, what the fuck? You know, like, man, if you just imagine if automobile manufacturers did that. Sorry, Ford and Pinto. Um, (laughs) Don't have a history at all of producing crop. (laughs) You know, just imagine if airplanes did that Boeing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. My my saying, depending what sort of client meeting I'm pitching in, if the owners are, I say, look, there's two types of commissioning people. I can tell you what you want to hear. That's going to cost you one price. Or I can tell you what you need to hear. That's going to save you a lot of money. That's another price. you got to tell me what game you want me to play here. That always yeah. gets a reaction and gets the conversation going. You can only say that, though, if the owner's in the meeting. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's a contractor oh, yeah. only, he wants what he wants to hear. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's it. And we we ran into that a lot. And one of the one of the things that I've learned early on, because... I tell people, you know, listen, you know, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Literally, I mean, that's what we're known for that. I I broadcast that. You will not get what you want to hear. You will get what you need to hear. Yeah. And so I learned early on two things. Charge for the first meeting because they're not going to hire me after. So I don't do estimates for free. (laughs) And then get paid up front in full. Yeah. Here's the price. This is what I'm going to deliver. You pay me in full up front. And they go, why? And I go, because you're not going to like my answer and I'm not going to do all this shit and have you not pay me. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, also that's, that's reality, a right? That's a way of filtering out bad clients and bad credit risk, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I had a guy argue with me. This is client. At one point, they were 52% of our revenue and I fired them because I walked in and it's like, you guys aren't paying us, you know, the way our pay scheme is structured in the contract. And he said, well, nobody pays up front. And I said, okay, so when you go to Walmart to buy your jeans, do you get to walk out of the store with wearing those jeans and tell Walmart, I'll pay you in 90 days? And he goes, no. When you go to the grocery store, do they let you load up your grocery cart and then, you know, walk out to your car and drive home and say, I'll pay you in 90 days? And they go, no. I said, when you buy gas, mm. before you put the gas in your car, do you have to pay or do you pay after you put the gas in your car? And he goes, I pay before I put the gas. I said, so you do pay up front for all kinds of things. You just don't want to pay up front for our services. Well, this makes this conversation easy. I just did. And I walked out. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Well, this is something that needs to be spoken about more when people are young like Chris. I personally think fee for service is the worst business model ever mm. invented. But we're all in a cult, so we go along with it, right? Mm. So somehow Bill Gates broke that and got paid, right? Yeah. So software as a service breaks that and gets paid. But like the architects, the engineers, contractors, they're all in this cult. And it is literally the worst business model ever invented. I can prove that. You go and look at the multiples for what fee-for-service businesses sell for. A fee-for-service business might go for four, five, six times EBITDA, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, like a, a SaaS business goes for something like 10, 16 times revenue. <laughs> yeah. What? Where do you want to be in that game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's- We've talked about this before in the past, you know, on some of the episodes. And I remember a time when when we first started our website up and we would get all kinds of tire kickers looking for information. And we, because we were starting the business, we thought, okay, well, we'll donate a lot of our hours. We didn't think that at the time. We thought we were doing a good thing. And then I remember the moment, I remember the year and I remember the results. And I just said, that's it. We're done. Yeah. giving away information. If people want free stuff, go to the website. They can read all they want. They can take whatever they want. It's all free. But when it comes to 
extracting the shit that's inside my brain, you pay upfront. And what we did is we qualified everybody. We basically said, this is what you're getting. This is what you need to expect. You're going to be paying for even our first consult call. It's going to be an hour, two hours. It's not free. You're paying for it. And then if there's a good vibe between us and we want to develop a, a relationship, design relationship, well, then we'll continue on with another contract, which again, you're going to pay up front for. <laughs> yeah. As soon as we did that, people listening, as soon as we did that, right, we got rid of 80% of the tire kickers. Our closing ratio went up to like 80%. It was a game changer for us. Yeah. Right? If yeah. you give something away for free, people value it for what you give it away for. They value it at zero. Yep. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, it's it's completely mental. And you know, when you stop and think about it, like I'm I'm actually looking at the software as a service industry, and there's a guy that I've been paying attention to over there. His name escapes me right now. Thirty or forty concussions, they'll do that to you. <laughs> uh, but but he he keeps talking about these business models. Patrick Campbell, that's his name, mm. and he, the business models in the SaaS industry. And he's got a company that basically those companies hire him his company to figure out how to stop the leaks in their systems. And so I was, I keep looking at this, like there's got to be a way to take that business model and translate it over to what we do. Like, how do we do this? How do we get this sort of subscription model built in? How do we get this idea that, that what we have in our heads is valuable and people need to pay for that. And at the same time, we get recurring monthly revenue from that. Like, how do we do that? And in a way that's honest, that's clean, that allows me to sleep at night, and yet still reflects the value of what we're doing. We do value-based pricing. Yeah. Cost plus is horrible. And so we do value-based pricing and we look at the project, what is it worth? And we try to capture, after we're done working with a client, what value have we generated for? And we try to capture a percentage of that value that we estimate. So it takes a lot of work. But when we do it, when we guess right, awesome. If we guess wrong, we learn and we figure out a better way to do it. I guessed wrong once. I recently, I got hired by an attorney to look at something, and I estimated that 20% capture value capture would be about eight grand, no big deal. So, you know, a couple hours of work. And it turns out it was eight million. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that for a couple of hours' of work. <laughs> that, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> next time I need to ask a few more questions about what this is going to be doing and not just rely on the surface of, you know, oh, we just need you to look at these things. Like, well, why do you need me to look at these things? What are you going to be using that for? Yep. I didn't yeah, dig deep do, do your homework for a better job, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> so so the, then I tell everybody about it. I tell all my team about it. Like, yeah. listen, I've screwed up. You're going to screw up. It's Okay. Uh, Let's just learn the lesson and share the lesson so that everybody else learns the lesson. What yeah. you did there was paid for your own tuition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to circle back to the ASHRAE thing because, you know, for our listeners, you know, Robert's an ASHRAE, distinguished ASHRAE fellow. So he's deep in the cult and he is a senior <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi on several communities. So I say my opinion of ASHRAE ASHRAE has been a part of my professional life ever since I started, right? Mm. I've been a member of ASHRAE. I haven't. I've been on it. I've been off it. I just find that ASHRAE as an institution is a very slow-to-move thing. I find it, and I'm an old dude, right? I'm only 60, so, but it just reminds me of CNN. Yeah. My question is, how relevant is it? I've spoken to some young engineers who find it frustrating and want to ignore it. 
and they are successfully ignoring it. So, you know, what relevance does ASHRAE have? I know it's a lobby group, really, not an engineering institution. It's an engineering institution that does lobbying, let's put it that way, right? And it's an important factor in setting standards, right? But how does ASHRAE stay relevant, I suppose, is my question. Well, certainly through, when you look at the members that come to the table, like we, like I said, yeah. we have over 138 committees, I think it is, right? Yeah. So what comes out of those committees are people that come from everywhere. And we have yeah. 157, or no, 57,000 members worldwide and young people, old people, whatever. So yeah. how does it stay current? It, it stays current through its membership coming from all corners of the world. And, you know, in terms of the, Speed, speed that it operates at. Nobody's in denial at Ashray about the speed that we work at. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's a standing joke, right? Yeah. But there's a reason for that, and it's the slow, methodical processes, ANSI yeah. processes, right? That uh, we follow so that what gets produced in terms of codes and standards and research work, because we we fund millions of dollars every year in terms of research work that it's done to a quality that uh, people can rely on. Yeah. And, and we get it most of the time. It's not a perfect organization. It's a large organization that has a big footprint and yeah, we move slow. But yeah, I mean to be fair, Ash right, the subject matter is complex and it's a big it's a big area. I just think someone needs to be parachuted in to shake it up and make it a bit more 21st century. <laughs> a bit lighter. <laughs> you know, less of the freaking kissing of the rings everywhere. You know? Well, you think about it, right? So we got started in the late 1800s. Yeah. So it's not like we were a startup, you know, when, if you look at any old organization, there are times to shake it up. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying the time is now or, but there will be a time for sure, like any organization. Yeah. Brett, what about you? Do you have any interaction with Ashray? Does it impact your work? I've avoided Ashray like a syphilitic whore on a Saturday night. <laughs> For, for almost all of my life, I, I have people. Some on people my, would just say yes, but <laughs> I have people on my team who are members of Ashray and serve on Ashray committees and stuff. But me personally, it's like uh, I couldn't take the brain damage. the <laughs> the The reality is, I don't know if you figured it out. I, I like how do we get this shit done, right? Yeah. You know, at some point, shit has to get actually done, and yes. where I focus on is get that shit done. Mm. And at some point, you know, every organization has to go through and look at themselves. We do this every year. How are we staying relevant? There's a great book by the Australian futurist. That's what I call him. Michael McQueen, winning the battle for relevance. Mm. Fucking phenomenal. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. <laughs> for like the second time. Because again, like every year I go like, how are we staying relevant? I've got a holding company that owns three companies. How are we doing what we're doing? Every time I read it, I discover something new because I've had new experiences over the years that have, you know, over the past year that's changed the way I look at things. And of course, I bring in team members to look at this and we ask these questions. And it's a really good guidebook for that any organization and every organization should use. Use the questions that are there. Ask yourselves these questions and be fucking honest. Mm. Yeah. You know? There's nothing worse than deluding yourself and then running around pretending that you've accomplished something great. You know, it's just, you haven't, all you did was slap some paint on the, the dilapidated ship and, you know, <laughs> the whole fucking thing is going down. Do you know what? That's a great <laughs> example. Like relevance, that is a very understated business concept, right? So you look at um, how Apple displaced BlackBerry, right? Yeah. Right. They sat back and assumed their relevance. They took it for granted, right? And then yeah. someone just came up and stole their lunch. 
So that from two years, they went top dog to bottom dog, right? That was amazing. Yeah. to have shorted that stock when that happened. Wow. But okay. look, we're coming up on time. We normally finish off with a couple of sort of rapid fire questions. I'll go first. Tell our listeners something about the uh, construction industry that they might not know that you know. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> What's the hidden? Tell me something you see. You know, it's like, I see dead people. What do you see? <laughs> Never buy the last lot in a subdivision. That's where the concrete trucks have cleared out their waste. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's good um, advice. That is awesome. You know, but it, just in general, I you know one of the patterns that I pick up is houses that are framed on a Monday tend to be worse, um, <laughs> and, and houses that are framed on a Friday tend to be worse. Any any construction work done on Monday or Friday tends to be shabbily done. Monday because they're recovering from the weekend, and Friday because they're looking forward to the weekend that they need to recover from. <laughs> and and I mean that's yeah. what we. Like, you know, simple things like, you know, people say, you know, who determines the size of the house? And everybody goes, oh, the architect does. Bullshit. The guy who's driving the backhoe that digs the hole that the concrete goes in determines the size of your fucking house. Because once that is done, the concrete goes in. Everybody's fucking concrete. Yeah. Yeah. I always found the houses that were framed when it was wet out tended to be bad buildings afterwards. Yeah. Because there's the mud, there's the moisture, there's the crew that's miserable. Yeah. Things slip. You can't get things straight, level, square, plumb, <laughs> or even. Yeah. yeah. And weather drove a lot of quality issues. In, in but, but how many times are they tracking what are the weather conditions on the job when people are doing the job? When I was building Brett, houses, they're coming into work Monday with a hangover. <laughs> I know. But I had, I had a book that we had for every job, every house we built, we had a book. And it's like, what are the weather conditions like? And they had to note the weather conditions and I'd get that report and I'd be like, fuck, you know, <laughs> if it was raining, then we got to take some extra care in this house. It needs to dry out before we start covering things up. Yeah, absolutely. But don't track that. You know, yeah. they don't track what the weather's like. In our program, we actually like, what's the weather like? You're out there to do these tests. Is it windy? Is it rainy? Is it, you know, what's the weather like? I remember when I, when I was doing the literature review for the indoor air quality awareness course for the Heat and Refrigeration Air Conditioning Institute of Canada. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and anyways, and I, and I remember like we put stuff into that book that had a lot to do with, you know, site conditions because we're talking air quality. And that's one of the problems that we have is that, you know, when we talk about air quality, the mechanical world sees filtration and humidification. That's yeah. their lens, Right. And we would say, no, the air quality starts the minute somebody removes the soil off the property, right? Because you, you have no idea what the drainage is. You have no idea what the moisture, how the geology, the geography, it, all of that affects at some point the air quality. And we would talk about site conditions, people bringing mud into the job site. Well, that mud eventually gets ground into all the wood, which then that's becoming powder at some point when the building dries out. Well, now where's that dust? And now it's yeah. going to be in the air. It's going to be under the floor covering. It's going to be in the walls. It's everywhere, you know? And we would talk about form oil. You know, people don't know you set up those forms and you start spraying them with oil. Well, at some point that oil is going to get on shit. And there are people who are sensitive to that stuff, right? Yeah. The landscapers planting, pulling, producing plants into the intakes of ventilation systems. Like yeah. everything is connected. Yes. Right. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to get on another one of my soapboxes. Listen, we've all just given a great five minutes about why modular housing and manufacturer, like offsite manufacturer, is required, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually, that's my question to Brad. Go, go. Why, when we have so many proven, demonstrated examples of 
manufacturing processes. Automobiles is a great one. Boats, planes, any, any form of transportation is done under quality control systems. Why have we not seen it adopted on a large scale manufactured housing in North America and on the world, really? Yeah. So the government spent a shit ton of money, which is slightly more than a metric ton of money <laughs> on, on studying this. And how do we get the industrialized housing process to take off in this country? And the closest we can get to is panelization. Yes. For some crazy reason, when people build things in chunks and they come out to the job site and they get assembled in chunks, it throws code officials into a tizzy. How do I know that they did that in the factory? Mm-hmm. Well, because here's all the reports from the yeah. factory. They, they, how do I know they're not, you know, like I didn't see that. I didn't see what was in the walls. I didn't, you know, it's like, yes, no, there was a code guy in, in the plant that was, yeah. you know, he did that and he's telling you he did that. And everybody's like, oh, no, no. But now if this is going on, then what am I going to be doing? What's my job? What's my role? And you're like, well, okay. Your role is to go find another fucking job. That's what your role is. (laughs) You know? Like, what is it? It takes Boeing, what? What is it? Three months to build a 747? Yeah. Something like that. I think the largest cruise liner on the oceans today took a year to build. Think about that, right? The largest cruise liner in the world took a year to build. It's got way more complex electrical mechanical systems. It's got, a, you know, restaurants to serve thousands of people. It's got housing. It's got navigation systems. It's like the most complex cruise thing going on. And it takes a year to build. And we can't get a house built in a year that's, uh, that can do the same yeah. shit. I, it's like it's Robert, they're not building those things out of wood. <laughs> you don't understand. Oh, I knew I was missing something. There's a craft. There's a craft involved. That you, you have to, you know, it's special. So, you know, it irritates me because, you know, and when I was building Habitat for Humanity houses, I looked at the process we were doing. And I go like, well, this sucks. So I built our own panel factory, and we panelized everything. Yeah, and we were able to turn it without doing a blitz build. We were able to turn a house over to a homeowner in 15 construction days. Yeah, that's yeah, see, that's phenomenal. That's the yeah. way it should and, be. And and it literally got down to I laid out every fucking stud. I every panel I, I laid it out. Here's I knew exactly I had 211 studs in the house. I knew exactly how everything went, laid it out. I turned the plan over to a crew that had no idea what the fuck they were doing. But if they could understand a drawing, you know, we had the stud markings were laid out on the table. So all you had to do is just cover the paint, right? You know, and everything worked and shifted that down. Now put the sheathing on. Now yeah. shift over here. And the sequence was in such a way that when the panels came off the assembly line and got stored, when they got put on the truck, when they showed up at the job site, the top panel was the first wall. Second panel was the second wall. Yeah, so you sequencing's in there, right? In the logistics. Yeah. yeah. And in Holy order cow, logic. two weeks before <laughs> I needed to have them because that was the lead time. Two weeks before they'd show up on the day that I needed them. The crane was there. The truck would show up, drop the trusses off. The crane would immediately start setting the trusses. Done, you know? Deck it, done. You know, let's get it into the dry as fast as we can. Let's do this in a systematic way. And we worked with the architect to redesign the house and the layout. So when it was fucking universal design, you know, I've spent some time in a wheelchair and I don't know if you guys have, but houses that are not designed for fucking wheelchairs suck. Mm. I can't even get into my own master bathroom, you know, (laughs) and that becomes a problem when you got to, you know, get in the middle of the night, get into a wheelchair, roll down the hallway. But we designed universal design baked into the system. We did 24-inch on-center framing, and we made sure that a window landed on that framing so we didn't have to have unnecessary stud. Killed yeah. dead with drywall stops. Simpson Strong Tie became my best friend, you know? 
to get these houses built quickly and in and effectively. And the price point, we save five thousand dollars in construction costs on a habitat house by yeah. doing stuff. Wow. Right? Wow. And that's standardization as well, right? Standardization, yeah. sequencing, yeah. process. Yeah. And, and yet I tell people we did this and they go, no, that's impossible. I go, well, I can show you the fucking houses on Citico Avenue in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they were energy efficient, by the way, baked into the system. Yeah. Not yeah. an afterthought, baked in. Yeah. This is the problem. And when you've got reduced it's supply, people will buy any dog shit, right? That's the problem, yeah. ultimately. So listen, we're coming up on time. Brett, thanks very much. I could yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> I want to believe yeah. that somewhere in your backyard, there's a spitfire that you fly around with your goggles on. Your <laughs> I wish. The, yeah, the, the scarf. Yeah. Scarf. <laughs> I, I, I do. <laughs> My wife knitted me a scarf and she knitted one of these like little short ones. I was like, no, no, no. I need a big scarf. I, not quite. I need a long scarf. It has to go over my shoulder in both directions. Okay, man. Well, look, thank hilarious. you very much for coming on. And yeah, that was, a, that was a good one. Thanks. Thank you, guys. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows and Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. The future promised real-time monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with SensorSuite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? SensorSuite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android, and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to sensorsuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show. I love those conversations that kind of wander, but there's yeah humor and sarcasm. But the underlying tone is, damn it, people. Like, you know, like, let's get this together. Everybody... You know, we can, we speak to knows what the problem is. Yeah. Has several ways to address it, yet mm. nothing happens, right? And it's mm. a I'm convinced until there's a buyer strike and people stop buying bad buildings, it's yeah. never gonna change, right? I, I agree. Bad bad construction is rewarded with a sale. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, the whole industry is based upon it. Yeah. You know, you've got real estate agents that they don't care. All they care about is the money. Oh, God. The builders, it's just a cash flow. I mean, the reality is business is about, well, you could be making toothpicks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, there's probably more quality control out of toothpicks than there is in housing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just until the money stops meeting bad outcomes, it's never going to change. It is depressing, actually, because. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm looking like we want to move in the next year or two, and I'm thinking I just cannot buy a new house because I know how they're built. So I've got, mm-hmm. my goal is either to buy a bit of land and build something, or buy a really shitty old one and just gut it, it like down. completely. Yeah. Which is what we did with the house we're in 15 years ago. I just bought this 70s porn studio. That's what it looked <laughs> like anyway. A shag pile carpet, everything chocolate brown, and yeah. we gutted it. I mean, literally back to the studs and redid it. So I got the house I wanted. And I knew how good it was, right? Yeah. Because every yeah. week, I'm in everyone's face trying to make sure it's done properly. Yeah. And that's the minimum for me, right? The problem is yeah. when you know how the cake is baked, it's really hard. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's, you know, the project that we're on now is, yeah. is like that. And uh, But the difference, I guess, between you and I, Adam, and the rest of society is we know what should be done. We see quality. We know what quality is. We understand the science behind design, yeah. how things should get put together, how things should be commissioned. Like we get it, right? I, you know, society as a whole, well, we talked about this with, I think it was Sean on that, or we talked about how to teach people. Like in high school, we should be doing a course, a class, yeah. how to buy a home or your yeah, housing or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, what you need to look for. And I think, you know, your whole comment about, you know, a revolt or a, strike a buyer strike you know that would well, i mean it's a billions and billion dollar industry I mean, the money that flows through the construction industry is so huge that people stop buying well if i was the guy who organized that someone would put me in the ground at some point right? <laughs> 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 yeah, i'd last well, about a month until someone dragged no me shortage down. of World leaders, Kennedy, when I think, you know. Exactly, yeah. Right, you know. Upsetting the status quo fast is never a good idea. You've got to do it, like, gently, I think. But, you know, Brett is interesting because he's had a sort of interesting background, right? He understands the engineering piece, the construction piece. He's also got that marketing background. Yeah. He's got these, these, the interesting people in our business are always people who've come in from left field, right? Somebody's coming from an adjacent and they... And that's where not, change happens. Yeah, they're not fully sort of indoctrinated into like dogma. Uh, yeah. There is dogma in our business, right? And yeah, it's absolutely. the people that come in from left field that can sort of shake that off a bit. Oh, that's what I liked about him. He had that, the yeah. rebel cause. He had that hand Solo thing going to hyperspace going on, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, that, that subject alone is fascinating to me. I mean, when yeah. I think about how associations get started. Like if you go way back when, yeah. like even think actually, right? In the 1800s, right? It was a half a dozen people that got together and said, you know, we have a common voice that's, you know, creating an association. Well, then this thing begins to bloom out. Yeah. And uh, we see it all the time in associations everywhere, all over the world. And, and it becomes a club, right? And they set the rules. They set the way you're supposed to do business, blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes a machine, but then sometimes the machine no longer works. It doesn't function within the time frame that it is. And it's somebody that comes out from left field that yeah, says, can shake that up. Shake it up. When you're in it, you don't know. So it's like Ashray yeah. is a great example. Started with the best of intentions. You know, we've got to bring some order to this chaos. We've got to agree some common standards. We've mm-hmm. got to protect the public good and public safety. Those are all completely worthy things. Then it becomes an institution in itself. 
The reason I'm a bit down on ASHRAE and ASHRAE-like organizations is younger people I speak to in the business are just so unimpressed by them because mm. they're not doing anything for them. It's old people talking to old people, you know what I mean? Says the old person. But, you know, it's like, I think the whole concept's got to be reorganized to project and in a positive way communicate with younger people and get them excited about it and get them excited about contributing because the, the net outcome from the lack of interest of younger people in things like ASHRAE is they're not going to contribute. Like, you know, when we were coming up, volunteering on an ASHRAE committee was an honor, right? Yeah. These people well, don't see it that way. And kudos to ASHRAE because they do have the Young yeah. Engineers, you know, group, uh, yay, they call it. Yeah. And what was interesting, actually, this last two weeks, a lot of, on LinkedIn, actually, was a lot of young ASHRAE members announcing that they had been elected to leadership positions within their organizations. That's what it you know, means. So we, yeah. So I think ASHRAE, when you're on the outside looking in, that's different than when you're on the inside looking out. And yeah. what, if you're in the inside, you can see that there is a concern and there is motivation to bring in young engineers into the Institute. And as we're starting to see, these young people are proud of it. And they are telling yeah. the world that I've been elected to this particular position or I'm now the chair of this particular chapter. And so we are seeing that. Could we do a better job of it? Absolutely. Like any other organization, absolutely. Will the organization be the same in 100 years from now? I hope not. No, no. It's you about know? relevance, right? There's a demographic yeah. time bomb going off the moment, like with loads and loads of baby absolutely, boomers retiring. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And if you're not careful, that demographic time bomb can take an institution like Ashray down because mm. you wind up all of a sudden, where's everyone gone? Yeah. There's no one here. There's no one on this committee. There's no one running that. And yeah, and you haven't been proactive in bringing in that young blood to fill them spots, right? What they're yeah. doing at the moment tend to be, and this is a generalization, clearly, you know, there's, they're just extending the life of the baby boomers in place. Mm. Mm. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that because you want that, but you've got to be matching Absolutely. With new people. So you've got this handoff. Yeah. Right? And it is part of the mentorship program, right? It yeah. is part of mentoring as we've both done to, yeah. to young people. So anyways, it was great having Brad on and I, I love his passion, his enthusiasm. <laughs> He's just got an edge to him that uh, just speaks to me. <laughs> Absolutely. You, but yeah. right. <laughs> I love the Mavericks. Okay, yeah. mate. All right, I'll sir. See you in the next one. All right. Cheers. Take Bye. care. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.